your word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. It is alive, an anchor in the storm, a compass in the wild. Your word is a foundation built with truth, unmoving and undiminished. By its light, all is seen and known. On your word, we stand. Well, good morning. Oh, that was lame. Let's try again. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, that sounds like y'all got a cup of coffee before you came in. I'm glad you're here this morning. Welcome to 2019. This is the first time we've gathered in the new year. Is that exciting for y'all? Yeah. yeah. All right. Sounds like a lot of people who haven't made it through a week with their New Year's resolutions, right? How many of y'all have still stuck or are like still on track with your New Year's resolutions, right? One person has still. I can tell this one in this service, I can't say it in the next one because my kids will be here, but one of, my, one of my kids, I will not say which, decided on the 31st that he, now you can figure out at least it's the boys, was going to have a new New Year's resolution that they were going to drink coffee every day, <clears throat> which I'm cool with, whatever, it'll be fun to sit around and drink coffee with my son, it'll be great. Well, it was two sips in on January 1st when he was like, that New Year's resolution's done. <laughs> Like, coffee's gross. I'm like, sure, give me your cup. It'll be awesome. Well, welcome to 2019. It is exciting. And, and as we kind of turn the page on 2018, and there's so many things that happened this past year, and all the, the sermon series that we went through, and in individual lives, I know some of the stories of, of things that God has done in, in our lives, and, and what a great time, what a great year God has given us. And we look forward to great things that he's going to do in 2019. I know, I hope, I hope that you're in that same place. I know many of you are as, as we've talked and look forward to 2019. And over the past couple of years, there's been this phrase that's kind of come up. And, and I think you'll know what I'm talking about as, as you kind of look back over the past couple of years. One, one phrase sticks out, something that, that kind of has risen to the top. It's something that we sometimes are serious when we talk about. And sometimes it's more in parody. Maybe, maybe you know this phrase. Fake news, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? This is not politically charged, so please don't judge me. But there's the phrase, it's come up, and we see it in the news, we see it from people in charge, we see it on Saturday Night Live, right? It, it's this, this phrase that, that the reality is there's sometimes that we don't get all the story. Sometimes maybe you're watching a, a major news outlet and, and, and you hear the story, but it's like, man, that's not the whole story. Maybe it's a Facebook link that you follow, and you're like, why did I follow this link? But then you're reading the story, and it's like, that's not the whole story. Maybe it's Apple News gives an alert, or, or maybe you, like I have a middle schooler, and you question the source as the middle schooler gives you news that maybe that's not the whole story. Maybe there's some more to it. Maybe you're not getting all the pictures. Honestly, uh, if we think about it, there, there's some... There's, there's some wisdom in kind of taking a step back when we hear certain things, like when we get news from certain people, when we listen to it or read it on the internet, right? There's, there's some wisdom in having a little bit of skepticism in what we're hearing being the whole truth, right? If you're reading it online, let, let me just make sure the public service announcement, everything that you see on Facebook is not the truth, 
Amen? That was a little more jovial in the 8 o'clock. They might have been a little more awake. Right? You followed that link, like, from your grandma, and you're like, why is she on Facebook? And why is she posting this? Right? Maybe it's whatever news you watch. Like, that's not the truth. Maybe, like I said, you have a middle schooler, and their source is some other, other middle schooler who has a YouTube channel. Maybe that's not the greatest source of news. There's some reason for us to think about and to have a little bit of skepticism when we hear certain things. And, and, and the reality is that, that even as that's kind of risen over the past number of, year, number of years as we kind of question those sources, over the past number of, number of years, there's, a, there's, a, there's staggering reports at the skepticism and, and kind of the, the way that people push back and kind of question the authority of God's word. I mean, if you read the stories, the, the studies, then in just a few generations, the number of people from, from just our, fa- our parents' generation or, or just a few back from that, the people that trusted that God's word was true, that it was infallible, inerrant, that it was God's word compared to today, there's plenty of people who have a little bit of skepticism about what God's word is and whether or not it's true. Skeptics is... They, they ask questions about whether or not the Bible is a human invention. They, they, they ask questions about, or, or they, they say that it may have dangerous implications for our culture. Skeptics of God's word are, are often looking at it saying maybe it's offensive or outdated, that it's, that it's irrelevant, that it's full of errors, that it's insufficient to, to, to face the matters of life that we face on a daily basis. And, and these are critical questions that need to be answered. They're questions that are being asked by people you sit next to at work, people you work out with, your neighbors. They're questions that your kids are being asked at school. They're questions that that maybe your kids are asking even though they've been raised in your house and you believe that God's word is true and faithful. It may be questions that some of you are asking this morning, but you're not ready to actually bring them up in certain conversations because you're afraid of what others would say. But they're critical questions about God's word and its faithfulness that we need to answer. And this morning, as we kind of turned the page in 2019 to 2019, what we, what we decided to kind of land in the beginning, is, as Laura said earlier, is this, this series called Set in Stone. Because we believe that no matter what, no matter what your resolutions are for this 2019, that there's really one resolution that if you really lock into, it'll be profitable for your life, and it's reading God's word. Setting your life and your hope in God's word. Realizing that it's sufficient for everything that, that, that you would face and all of the questions that we have in our own, in our own life and with our families and, and with our kids and work and those things. And I'm convinced as we kind of look at this passage and look at uh, this series over the next couple of weeks and, and talk about God's word and its faithfulness and, and how we can understand it and its clarity and truth that I believe that there's no better time in history than right now for the church to be those who put their feet firmly on the truth of God's word. That for the church to be those who believe and live like we believe that the word of God is true. That we get to be a light in a dark and a chaotic world to shine light and clarity into confusion when we set our feet firmly on God's word. And this morning as we open up this this passage and work, work through 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. That's our hope. It's a really solid ground this morning. Say, how do I know the Bible is true? 
Over the next several weeks, you'll hear Pastor Jeff and, uh, talk about how do we read it and study it and, and, and how do we understand it, those kind of things. But tonight, to this morning, I want to kind of foundationally say, how do I know that it's true? It's a big task. I, I can tell you I'm excited about it, but it's a little bit nerve-wracking, right? I'm not very smart, and, and so, like, there, there's better guys who could, who could do that. So I've, I've got a lot of quotes here that can help me out with that. That was supposed to be funny. Thank you. But I believe these words that God, that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of one of the greatest sermons that he preaches that's true for us today just as it was for those who heard it the day that he spoke it. Listen, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. I believe that's true for us this morning. When we set our feet steady on 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 the word of God, that it's a stone we can build our lives on. No matter what wind or wave or streams that rise would come, we have a foundation that's steady. If you're able, I invite you to stand. We're going to read verse, read verse Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, uh, it'll be on the screen, and there's some Bibles in the back. We'd love for you to grab one of those and make it your own and read it. Uh, but here's God's Word, verses 16 and 17, 2 Timothy. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in the face of skepticism that, has, that, that rises and falls in our, in our culture, that your word remains faithful. That God, as onslaught of news and events happen all around us, that God, your word is steady and sure and never changes. It changes us, but your word never changes. And Father, this morning, as we come to your word, we come humbly, submitting our lives to its authority, recognizing that your word is authority over our lives. We're not authority over it. And we pray that you would speak to us, and by your Holy Spirit's power, you would transform us. And Father, I pray that in this, in this room, as I'm certain that there are plenty of people who have questions about the truthfulness and the authority that your word has, that you, by your Holy Spirit's power, would open eyes and teach us and draw us near to you. We would realize that this is a safe place for us to ask questions because we believe you meet us here. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And be seated. If you read this passage, chapter 3, in, in the beginning of chapter 3, it's almost like Paul kind of anticipates that Timothy is going to have some of these questions that he's going to face, these skepticisms that are going to come. It's almost like Paul, by, by God's grace, knows, because this is God's word, that, that we would face skepticism, that there would be time when people wouldn't believe in God's word. And if you read in the beginning, in verses 1 through 5, it says this, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, it says, but mark this, means pay attention. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, 
abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, lovers rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. What Paul writes in 2 Timothy as he writes this letter to Timothy and, and what we most, most understand to be one of, one of, if not the last letter that Paul would write, period, certainly the last letter that we know of that Paul writes to Timothy before he's martyred for his faith in Rome. And what Paul leaves Timothy with before he wraps up this, this letter is, hey, there's going to be time in the last days, in the days post-Christ's resurrection, and that means everything that Timothy lived in and everything that we lived in, when people live contrary to God's word, when people are going to look at themselves and say that their words are better than God's words, that their thoughts and their feelings have a greater authority over their lives than God's thoughts and feelings on their lives. Paul says that'll be a terrible time. But he continues, and in verse 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, he says, but you, Timothy, continue in what you're convinced of from the beginning and realize that all Scripture, all of what we have is God-breathed. And if you're tracking along with your, in the worship guide, you have the notes page, you can see that the first argument, the first place that we want to kind of settle our feet is that we can trust that the Bible is true because of its source. How do I know that the Bible is true? How can I, how can I believe that God's word is true? It's because of its source. And this is really kind of a, a three-fold argument, a three-way of kind of putting it, that, that God is true. That the Bible is God's words, therefore God's words are true. This is kind of a threefold way. We want to say that God's word is, we can trust that God's word is true because of the source. And the first aspect of that is that God is true. It says it throughout scripture. That he's holy and perfect, that all his ways are pure. Timothy, or excuse me, Paul writes in in Titus chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. He says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, talking about God's word. Verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Scripture over and over again affirms that God is true. Not only is he true, but he is in and of himself the standard of truth. There is no greater standard of truth, which is important for us in our day because we, have, we live in a time where people talk about living out your own truth, which is sweet and encourages us for a moment. But the reality is that there is just one truth, and his name is God. So how do I know that God's word is true? Because the source is God, and God is true. Secondly, Scripture tells us that it's breathed out by God. That the Bible is the word of God. That if God is true and these words are breathed out by him, and lastly, that I can believe that God's word is true. Like, see, that's kind of a cir- circular argument, right? You're using, you're using your source to prove your source, right? Like, well, I, honestly, I don't know any other way to do it. 
If God is the standard of truth, if he is the creator of truth, he owns truth because he created all things, what greater source can I go to other than God to prove that he's true? One author, a guy named Wayne Grudem, says this, that if God claims that, wor- that script, excuse me, starting over, if God claims that the word of scripture is his own, or his own, then there is ultimately no higher authority one can appeal to, to, for proof of the claim that scripture has on itself. For what authority can be higher than God? So scripture ultimately gains its authority from itself. If we were to make an appeal, an ultimate appeal, for example, to human logic or scientific reason to prove the Bible is God's word, then we assume that those things to which we appeal are higher authorities than God. What all that means is this, that we're not void of looking at and and looking through logic and scientific reasoning to, to prove that God's word is true, but if those things are our ultimate source, then we're saying that those things are higher authority than God. And so the best way, even if you have arguments with your friends and and your family, if people are, are arguing for the truthfulness of God's word, the best thing that you can do is always stay on the fact that God's word says that God's word is true because there's no higher authority for you to appeal. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have great proof in other ways. Time Magazine, a number of years ago, wrote this in response to the, the onslaught of questions about God's word and its truthfulness. It's a secular magazine writing this about the Bible. It says, after more than two centuries of facing the heaviest scientific guns that could be brought to bear, the Bible has survived. Go figure. The go figure was mine. <laughs> and perhaps it's the better for the siege. Even the critics, even in the critics' own terms and the historical facts, The scriptures seem to be more acceptable now than they did when the rationalists began the attack. Time magazine. There's plenty of sources, not hundreds, but thousands of historical record findings, architectural findings in in the Middle East that prove the faithfulness of the copy of scripture that we hold in our hand to be true and breathed out by God. I mean, even if you just research classical literature, I I, I implore you, do this on your own. If you research classical literature and and the manuscripts that we have from the same time period of classical literature and older, even, even older pieces of documents, for instance, Homer's Iliad. Did I say that right? Yeah. A classical work, right? It has as many as the newer accounts in the, in the past couple of generations. There's been some new documents that are found. Even that has as the top 2,000 copies of, of Homer's Iliad. Classical script, classical document. And even those manuscripts aren't, don't agree across all 2,000. Even some of the older, other pieces, the most you have, and Iliad is the most out of those ancient documents. Most of them are in the 200s that we have copies of. But they're seen as, as sources of history and, and, and great classical literature. But the Bible, according to, mo, according to many 
who have studied this and looked back on how many, how many documents and, and source material we have, manuscripts from, from the Old Testament and the New Testament, according to James McDowell, evidence that demands a verdict, the most recent counts is that we have upwards of 66,000 full or fragments of manuscripts of Scripture that support the truthfulness of the claims that what we hold in our hands is God's word, faithful. And what was interpreted then is true and, and right for us today. One author says that there's no body of literature, of ancient literature in the world, which enjoys such a wealth of good textual authentic- authentication as the New Testament. That if you research the way that manuscripts were, were, were studied and the procedure of preparation and preservation of the biblical manuscripts, you, it even reveals further that, that these documents are faithful transmissions of the original. One author says this, he says, that Christians can take hold of the Bible in their hands and say without hesitation that what they hold is the true word of God handed down from generation to generation throughout the centuries. And all of those, those scientific and historical reasons that we can go back to and look and support the truth all lead us back to what we already know, that God is the source, that he breathed it out, that he was true, that he is true. But these are his words, that means his word is true. There's no greater place for us to go to prove what we know in the word itself. There's other arguments that I believe are, are, are just as important, and, and I think probably my favorite is, is the next, that if you're working through this, that, that we can trust that the Bible is true because of the Son. That we can trust the Bible is true because of the Son, that Jesus himself saw the rest of, scriptures, rest of Scripture as authoritative. Not only do I know that the Bible is true because of the source, but I can also look to the Son. How many of y'all were, were in youth group or, or remember the 90s, right? And y'all, some of you don't want to admit it. You were there, and we've got pictures somewhere. Do you remember if you were in youth group in the 90s, there was this craze that swept across youth groups, across uh, church youth groups across the, across the globe that these what would Jesus do bracelets? Remember the WWJD bracelets? Like to be a real Christian, you had to have one, right? Like it was a mark. Like, oh, I don't really know if you're actually following Jesus. Where's your WWJD? You had to take it off for baseball games. You're like, oh, I don't know if I'm still following Jesus. Anyway. I think I saw somebody with one. Anybody still got one? I think I saw somebody with one on the other day. I was like, is that coming back? Like, there's some things from the 90s that I'm okay with. That would be okay. Jinko jeans, remember those? Let's not let those come back. <laughs> the question of what would Jesus do with Scripture? Like, if, I, if I'm a believer, if, I, if I'm a follower of Christ, if I, if I place my faith in Jesus, it's a fair question for you and I to ask, what does Jesus do with Scripture? And overwhelmingly, in the New Testament, what we see in the biblical record of the Gospels that we have is that Jesus affirms that he saw Scripture as authoritative, that he believed that the Old Testament Scriptures were true. Jesus, in the three years of public ministry that he, that he 
walked on the earth and and healed and and preached that in those three years of public ministry, he quotes from all but two of the Old Testament books. Jesus believed that the word of God in the Old Testament, what he had as a copy, was true. That when Jesus starts his public ministry, it says that he goes to the temple, what he did on a regular basis, and he unrolls the scroll and he reads from the scripture, and he says to those that are around him, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus believed the scripture was authoritative and true. After 40 days of fasting on the the beginning of his, his, his earthly ministry, he's tempted by Satan, and three times as the enemy tempts him, he goes to scripture to support what God was doing in the mission that he was on. Quoting from the Old Testament each time, saying it is written, pointing to the fact that in Deuteronomy, these are the things that were written, and I believe those to be true. It goes on when, when there were arguments, when people questioned things about divorce or questioned rights about divorce and, and the views on the Sabbath, Jesus cites the Bible. When those, the Pharisees' opponents, argued with him about, about what it meant to walk with God in faithfulness, he would tell them that they erred because they didn't know Scripture, because he believed Scripture was true. Hanging on the cross, Jesus cites Scripture. If you read Psalm, Psalm chapter 21, Jesus believes that Scripture is true. It was one of the greatest arguments for any of us Right? If, I, if I don't have the ability to prove and, and work through all of the scientific stuff, I know that God's word is true because God says it's true and God's true. But secondly, my Savior believed that God's word was true. I can trust that God's word is true because Jesus, my Savior, believed God's word is true. But lastly, and I think probably one of the, the greatest arguments for us, is that we can believe that God's word is true because of our own salvation and sanctification. That we can believe God's word is true because of our own salvation and sanctification. One of the greatest testimonies of the faithfulness and the truthfulness of God's word in our culture is the power of a transformed life. I mean, you can sit down with your friends and you can argue agnosium that Jesus believes scripture and that God is true and that means God's word. He spoke these words and that means God's word is true. But ultimately, one of the greatest testimonies to your friends, to your family, to your kids, to your coworkers is, the, is a life that's transformed by the word of God. I believe over and over again throughout scripture, we see that as the case and In our own lives, we see it as the case. Most of us don't believe God's word is true because we've done that historical research. And if you need to do it, then do that. But most of us believe it's true because of what's happened in our own hearts. Because of the change and the transformation that's happened in our own hearts. We've seen God's word be useful for rebuking and teaching and correcting and training in righteousness so that we can be equipped for every good work. I think a personal testimony is that this young lady named Amanda was a member at the church that I pastored in Baton Rouge. And she was the first person I got to baptize at the church that I pastored and planted there. And one afternoon after church was over, her and a friend of hers who had been sharing the gospel with her, a young lady named Laura, had been sharing the gospel with her for years. And Amanda came to the point where she wanted to trust Christ for salvation. And we sat there and 
Amanda prayed and put her faith in Jesus. And she looked up and she looked at Laura and I and she said, I feel like a new person. And I want to tell you that the word of God that was true already became alive for me in that moment. It became alive for Amanda and for Laura in that moment because even the passage that, that Danielle quoted just a couple of minutes ago, what does it say? That therefore, if anyone is in Christ, meaning they've put their faith in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And when Amanda looks up and says, I feel like I'm new. What she's saying is the testimony of scripture has come alive in my own heart. She doesn't know how to argue. She didn't at that moment know how to argue the truthfulness of Scripture because of the scientific proof. All she could say is what it says is reality in my own life. Where is it active in yours? Where is it true in yours? I can tell you that just this week, God's Word proved true in my own heart. Scripture says that it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training that as I was reading this week in Daily Steps, if you don't know what that is, we'll talk about it in just a minute, but reading through the book of Matthew this week in chapter 7, passage that I've read numerous times, read in in preparation for this sermon, that God's word became alive in my own heart when he used his word As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of the Father. And God, in his grace and his mercy, faithfully began to convict me in my own heart of my selfishness and my pride and ways that I was walking and trusting in myself more than trusting in Christ. And his word became alive for me in that moment. Psalm says it became, it became alive because listen to what Psalm says, that they, meaning God's, God's word, this is what David writes, he says, they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Because by them, by God's word, your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there's great reward. God's word this week, as I was reading, became alive. It was true already. God, by the power of his spirit, showed that word to be alive in my own heart as it convicted me and the preciousness of God's word and the sweetness of God's word to lead me to repentance, that I could walk in faithfulness with God, that by it I was warned, and in keeping it was great reward. Listen, it's not our desire as we work through this, these next couple of weeks talking about setting stone, it's not... It's not my desire or our desire for you to have a lot of knowledge, to be able to wax eloquent your your neighbors and your friends and, and be a theological mastermind. Ultimately, what we want for all of us is for the word of God to come alive in our hearts. Because the greatest proof of God's faithfulness and the truthfulness of his scripture is God's word coming alive in our own hearts. I can't tell you how many people I talk to on a regular basis that are struggling with their relationship with Christ, struggling with seeing, not seeing any growth and maturity. They're, 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 not walking, they're not feeling like God is actually present and, and active in their own lives. And when I ask them the question whether or not they're reading God's word, most often the answer is no. 
You remember Fresh Prince of Bel-Air when you would slap him on the back of the head? I can't do that. But I want to. Why would you think that you're going to grow in relationship with God? Why would you think that God's presence would be near and that you would feel that, 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 that movement of God in your heart? Why, why would you think that God's word would become alive and active in your heart if you're not reading it? If you're questioning the truthfulness of God's word and you're not reading it, I don't really know what to tell you other than read it. Let it become alive and active in your heart. Let God, God by the power of his spirit, open your eyes to what, what, the, what his word means and how blessed it is and how great and what great reward it is in walking with him. Because listen, no matter what you face, no matter what spot you're in this morning, no matter what trial you're going to face this week or, or, or struggle you're walking through in your marriage or with your kids, God's word is faithful and true. It hasn't changed. So listen, if you're in elementary school, God's word is true. And it's useful for you where you are today. If you're in middle school, that awkward stage of life where you're trying to figure out who to be friends with and you don't know what to do with your body and we all think you're weird too, right? I say that as a former middle schooler who was really weird. God's word is true for you. It's useful for teaching and rebuking and training you in righteousness. If you're in high school and you're beginning to have some more freedoms with your life and, and figuring out who you're going to be friends with, God's word is true for you. It hasn't lost its truthfulness just because you think you're smarter. If you're in college and, and you've got more freedoms and there's more thoughts and ideas that are swirling around and people are causing you to question the truthfulness of God's word, his word has not changed. It's still true. It's still usable, useful for teaching and correcting, rebuking and training you in righteousness. As a young adult, it's true when you're trying to figure out what you're going to do with your life. And you're new, newly married and you're wondering what it means to be unselfish because you didn't realize you were as selfish as you were until you got married, right? God's word is true. It's useful. It doesn't matter what stage they go through them all, that God's word is true and useful. The question is, are you reading it? Are you putting yourself under its authority and asking God to teach you and to mold you and to shape you? I invite some of the band to come back up, and we're about to close, but I want you to hear these words from Scripture and hold on to them. Because they are just as true today as they were the day that David wrote them for us. As God spoke them into existence, and David penned them. Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in, the step, in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. But blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, in his word. That person, those who have their delight in God's word, are like trees that are planted by streams of water 
which yield fruit in the season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Pray with me. Jesus, in the quietness of this moment, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would do your work as your word is alive and active, as it says in Hebrews. Would you do the work of convicting and rebuking and training us in righteousness? Maybe this morning the conviction that you're bringing in this room that, that proves again the truthfulness of your word over and over again is that, that conviction that we need to spend time in your word. Because we're blessed when we put ourselves at your feet. When we delight ourselves in your word. Father, I pray that, that you would do your work because I, I know that my words can't change anything, but you, your words, and the power of your Holy Spirit can transform lives. And we pray that you would do that this morning. You would open eyes and convict us and bring us to repentance and the experience of your great grace and faithfulness. It's in Christ's strong and mighty name that we pray. Amen. We're going to continue to worship. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. We have a song that's going to be sung really over you this, this morning as we take up the offering. But this isn't a break in what we're doing. Each week as we gather, we worship in multiple different ways by singing, by opening up God's word, by fellowshipping and looking each other in the eye and realizing that we need each other to live the life that God's called us to live. But we also worship through giving. It's another way that God tells us to, to prove him faithful, right, in his word. Give and see if he doesn't open up the storehouses and provide for you more than you could provide for yourself. Listen, if you're a partner here at Rolling Hills, we're so thankful for you. The way that you give sacrificially and proportionately, consistently. We pray that you would continue to do that and we thank you for it because your giving allows us to do incredible ministry all over the city and in the nations. If you're a guest, we're not asking you for money. We'd love for you to drop that connect card or your prayer request in the, in the bucket as it goes by or bring it out to Next Steps and we'd love to trade you out for a gift there and connect with you there. But either way, this is not a moment that pauses our worship. We continue to worship. This is where God is dealing with you. So as this song is being sung over and you're worshiping through giving, stay in that moment where you're asking God just to, just to show up in your heart. And if you need to deal with him, let's, let's deal with whatever God is dealing with you about. And then Laura will come and close us at the conclusion of this song. Let me pray for the offering and then we'll, uh, we'll continue to worship. Jesus, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you for the opportunity to give and to celebrate your faithfulness in the way that we give. We pray that you would use these tithes and offerings from faithful men and women. Father, some who are stretching and just trusting that you will provide as they are obedient to you. And we pray that you would prove that to be true today. You would prove yourself faithful because we know you will because you say in your word you will. 
So use these tithes and offerings for your glory. The message of the gospel would extend to the ends of the earth. Be glorified in our giving and our going and our gathering. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.